I also want to read for us this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are all in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit to illumine your word, to press its truths into our hearts. May you do so this day, that we might be transformed, that we might live faithfully to you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, I was at the local Panera Bread, and I was talking with someone. And uh, when he found out I was a pastor, he said, is your congregation one of those radical churches? And uh, this is right at the time when David Platt's book, Radical, was all the rage. And uh, so I thought for a second, and I said, well, yes, uh, we are very radical, Uh, In fact, half the people in my church don't even have jobs, and they are supported by the other half who give generously of their time, treasure, and talents. Thankfully, most of those members who are dependent eventually start to learn some skills and take responsibility. So I guess you could say we've got a pretty successful mercy ministry program going. Uh, I went on to say we've even got this amazing group of women in our church who are incredibly gifted at clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and caring for the sick. They'll do it 24-7, all year long, and never expect anything in return. And I think that's pretty radical. Uh, This guy just scratched his head and looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) So I explained to him that the half of our church that didn't work were actually all children. Uh, and the group of women who were clothing the naked and feeding the hungry 24-7 were actually their moms. I did not tell him that some of the moms actually run homes for unwanted children, uh, though uh, maybe sometimes it feels like that's the case. For a brief moment there, we were radical. But actually, when you start to unpack it, it's really not so radical, is it? It sounds pretty ordinary. Is it radical or is it ordinary? That's really the genius of the Christian faith. The Christian faith makes the ordinary radical. It finds the radical in the midst of the ordinary. Look again at what Paul says about the Christian life in 1 Thessalonians 4. All of this is his way of unpacking what it means for the brethren to love one another. He says aspire to lead a quiet life. Quiet would seem to be the opposite of Radical. It's the opposite of revolutionary. Mind your own business. Nothing radical about that. Work with your own hands. Walk properly or respectfully towards those on the outside. Those instructions are so ordinary, so pedestrian, it's almost like we expect Paul to say, oh yeah, and don't forget to change your oil every 3,000 miles and rotate your tires. It's just that kind of basic practical, mundane, ordinary instruction. And yet for Paul, that's the sum and substance of the Christian life. 
Oh, sure, some Christians are called to uh, what you could say are more radical callings. They're uh, perhaps called to the frontier mission field to take the gospel where it's never gone before, or they're called to a life of martyrdom. And some of those Christians with these more radical callings will have biographies written about them, will celebrate their memory. But most Christians at least according to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, most Christians are going to live quiet, ordinary, productive lives. There are not going to be books written about them. Their lives will be pleasing to God, but they will seem extraordinarily ordinary. An ordinary life, I think Paul is showing us here, an ordinary Christian life is nothing to be ashamed of. We don't need to go around bearing this great weight, this pressure to try to be awesome all the time, to try to be radical all the time. The ordinary Christian life is enough. The ordinary Christian does his job with competence. He's dependable and trustworthy. He's hardworking. The ordinary Christian changes diapers and ties to his church and cuts his grass and maybe takes in a ball game every now and then. He's productive and cheerful and thankful. He minds his own business. He does his work well. He seems to occupy the same space as non-Christians. You might say, how is this all that different from how non-Christians might live? He seems to fill the same space as non-Christians, but there is this difference. He fills that space faithfully. He fills that space as a disciple of Jesus. He is a faithful presence wherever he goes. He does all that he does as an act of service to God. He serves God in ordinary life. And so his very ordinary life becomes a sacrifice, a praise to God. A means of pleasing God. See, most of us as as Christians, we're called to this kind of life. We're not revolutionaries. We're happy to plod along. We're not rock stars. We're celebrities. We're just seeking to be faithful. We're not trying to be awesome and do something amazing that nobody's ever done before. We're simply seeking to be faithful in ordinary ways each day. And if you think about it, life really is pretty mundane and ordinary. We go through the same routines day after day, sleep with the same spouses, worship at the same church, shop at the same grocery stores. We do this again and again and again until it's time for one generation to move aside so another generation can take its place so they can live their ordinary lives to the glory of God as well. If you want to find something radical, where are you going to find it? You're not going to find it so much in the Christian life. You're going to find it in the grace of God that supports and undergirds that Christian life. The Christian life may not seem all that radical, but the grace of God is radical. His grace raises us from the dead. His grace forgives our sin. His grace transforms us. His grace undergirds and supports the whole Christian life. But God's radical grace meets us in very ordinary places. In water and bread and wine. In paper and ink. And yes, in His people. God's radical grace finds us in ordinary ways, in ordinary places. This ordinariness of the Christian life, I think, is important for us to capture. Today, I especially want to focus on what Paul says about work, uh, because this is such an important theme, not only here in this passage, but throughout the whole of the Scriptures. I want to focus on what Paul says about work. He says, work with your own hands. 
This is part of the Christian life. Work is an essential ingredient in the Christian life. Work doesn't give life meaning. I think that's a mistake to think of it that way. God gives life meaning. And if you try to find meaning in your work, if you turn work into an idol, in effect, that's what you're doing, you make work into a God rival, it will crush you. If work becomes your God, its demands will be never-ending, and your failures will never be forgiven. Don't make work into a God. That's certainly a temptation in our culture. Work can't replace God. Don't make it your master. Know that all of your significance and worth and value come from God. We can't create significance. We can't create our own value. These things are gifts God gives to us. But this is what I think we need to understand. One of the ways God gives our lives significance, one of the ways God gives our lives meaning and direction and purpose and value is by giving us work to do. And so this work received as a gift from God and then performed as a service to God gives our life value and meaning and purpose and direction. God assigns us work to do. And so this work gives structure and shape and purpose to our lives. Why do we work? Why is work so fundamental to our identity? Why is our work so bound up in who we are? To really understand work, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning, to the creation. Uh, As with everything else, we've got to go back to the beginning to really understand this. Work is good because God is the original worker. And indeed, this is what we see on the very opening page of the scriptures. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. So he's a worker. He's making things. But we find initially the earth was without form and empty and dark. And so over six days, God forms and fills and lightens the creation. He forms and fills and glorifies his creation. And of course, his work of creation culminates on the sixth day with the creation of man as male and female in his own image. Man is the crown of creation. Man as male and female is the crown of creation. Or you could say man is the crown of creation and the woman is the crown of the crown because that's how later scripture describes the woman as the crown of the man. As humans, male and female, we are uniquely made in God's image and we have this privileged status in the created order. Under God but over everything else. That's our place in the created order. Genesis 2 goes on to give a more detailed account of man's creation, showing how man was made from the earth, and then the woman was made from the man's side. And again, we see that God is the original worker. He's the original architect and carpenter and gardener, and man is made in God's image, and so man will do these things as well. See, what does it mean to be made in God's image? If God is a worker, then man must be a worker as well. If God works, then his image will copy his working in a creaturely way. Work does not exhaust what it means to be in God's image, but it's a central feature of what it means to be made in God's image. God is the original master craftsman. Man images God's working. Our work has value because our work imitates God's work. Thomas Schermacher puts it this way. He takes this all the way back up into the Trinity, which I think is really helpful. This is worth listening to. The triune God has been working, had been working, prior to men's existence in creation. 
Because God is triune, he even worked in eternity before creation came into existence. The persons of the Trinity worked with and for each other. In the Bible, everything good comes from the Trinity. Because the members of the Trinity speak to each other and Jesus is the word, we can talk to each other. Because the persons of the Trinity do not live for themselves but live for each other, men can be told to do the same. In the Trinity, obedience exists without anybody being forced to do something. Love and law are identical. Communication, love, honoring each other, and working to a goal outside of ourselves come from the Trinity. The triune fellowship even provides an archetype for the division of labor. The persons of the triune God divide their labor and do not all have the same task and job. I would say all of God is involved in all that God does. But certainly we see in the scriptures that each member of the Trinity has his own role to play. Because their work is different yet directed to one goal, the Trinity demonstrates what true fellowship means even prior to the creation. God wants men to serve each other as the persons of the Trinity serve each other. We depend on each other because we have different callings, different abilities, different gifts, and different tasks. Work is never only work for the benefit of the one working. It is always at the same time work for oneself and for others. It is the triune God who makes it possible that work for oneself and work for others do not stand in opposition to each other, but always go hand in hand. I think it's a wonderful way of describing what it means for us to work in the image of God, in the image of the Trinity. Our working in community as we all contribute our various forms of labor to the whole, our working in community images the triune God. Now, of course, we need to imitate God in our resting as well as our working because we find God resting on the seventh day. We need a rhythm of rest and work built into our lives. Uh, in the old world, before Christ came, they would look forward to that rest. They would be working their six days, and they would look ahead to all week long to that Sabbath at the end of the week, and then they would enjoy Sabbath refreshment at the end of their week on the seventh day. And, of course, that was a way of anticipating the coming rest that the Messiah would bring. But now that the Messiah has come, now that Jesus has come, we start our week with a day of rest, resting in God's presence with Christ himself, who is our rest. That's how Matthew 11, that's how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. I will be your rest. Come unto me and you will find rest. Enter into my rest by coming to me. That's what we do here in the liturgy. We're here in worship, resting in God, resting in Christ. And so a foundation is being laid here, a foundation of grace that then enables us to move out and do our work over the next six days supported and strengthened by the grace we have received here. We do our weekly work on the foundation of grace laid in this liturgy. What we're doing here in this liturgy is laying a slab of grace, laying down a slab of grace so you can build your work on that foundation, on that slab over the next six days. Our work flows out of our rest and our refreshment. It flows out of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is our rest. Another way of saying this would be to say that our work is based on rest because it's really based on the work of Christ himself. His work is what undergirds all of our work. And because of his work, we have rest. We can find rest. Let me tell you, let me see if I can describe for you how fundamental work is to human life. 
You'll notice in Genesis uh, chapter 2, work comes before the fall. God gives Adam a job before sin enters in. Uh, He gives Adam a job to do before sin enters the world. This job of subduing the earth and having dominion over it. This job of guarding and keeping the Garden of Eden. And so we should never think of work simply as punishment for sin. Sometimes in a fallen world, we use work as punishment. But work itself is not punishment. Work has been affected by sin, and so now our work is not always joyful. We're not always working in harmony with the creation. In fact, sometimes we feel like the whole world is stacked against us when we go to do our work. There are thorns and thistles, as Genesis 3 says, that, uh, that, that get in our way, that get in the way of our work. And it's part of the curse, how the curse has affected our work. But work is fundamentally good. Work precedes the fall. It's not part of the curse. It's part of God's good, original creation. Work also comes before marriage. This also is significant, I think. Adam was given a job to do before he was given a wife. And so when he is given a wife, she will come alongside him and help him in his work because he can't do it all on his own. Certainly he can't multiply and fill the earth without her. But neither can he subdue the earth and rule over it without her help. In Genesis 2, work precedes marriage. That's how intrinsic work is to who we are. It is natural for us to work. We were designed for work. We were made for work. And even marriage serves the common goal of work. A husband and a wife, they're drawn together into marriage by God in order to work together. Uh, Marriage serves the work. Their work is bigger than their marriage. Their marriage serves the work of, we could say, growing God's kingdom now. Marriage is about teamwork, doing together the work that God has given to the human race. Work shows man his place in the cosmos. Work is how we discover where we fit in. It's how we find our place in the world. And this is important because it's so controversial. One of the biggest issues in our day is man's relationship to the created order. Man's relationship to the world or to his environment. Look at Genesis 2. Uh, early in the chapter, Genesis 2.5. Genesis 2.5 describes the earth's primordial state at the beginning of day 6. We're told the plants and herbs existed. They had been created on day 3, but they were not yet bearing fruit. I think probably the trees at the center of the garden were the exception to that, but the other trees and herbs were not yet bearing fruit. Why? Genesis 2.5 tells us because God had not caused it to rain and because there was no man to till the ground. So for the plants to become fruitful, two things have to happen. They need to be watered by God and worked by man. They need to be watered by God and cultivated by man. God is sovereign, of course, but there's a sense in which God invites us Uh, into his own work and makes us partners or collaborators with God. We can even speak of ourselves in a certain kind of way as God's co-workers. And so God and man working together, water from above and work from below, will make the earth fruitful and habitable. In fact, it's not a stretch to associate that water raining down from above in Genesis 2-5 with the Holy Spirit. Because that's certainly how the Holy Spirit is described later in Scripture. One of the most common images for the Spirit in Scripture is the Spirit being poured out like rain upon the earth or poured out as water raining down on the earth. And so Genesis 2.5, you can almost say it gives us an equation, something like this. The Spirit 
plus human labor equals a fruitful and glorified creation. The spirit plus human labor equals a fruitful and maturing creation. Really, in a sense, you could say God is inviting man to continue what he has started. Over the six days of the creation week, God moved the world from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another. Over those six days, God was transforming and maturing his creation. It was always good, but each day God makes it better. It was always good, but each day God makes it a little bit better. Now it's as if God hands creation over to man and says, all right, now this is yours. And I want you to be my vice regent, my representative, and I want you to continue forming and filling and glorifying the world as I've done over these six days. I'll work. Rain will fall from heaven. And you're to work. This is your project. Your work is to transform the immature creation into a matured and glorified home. What's the creation to be? A home for God and man together. See, God's creation was flawless in the beginning, but it wasn't finished. It wasn't completely fulfilled. And what does God want man to do through his work? To take all the raw material and potentiality that's there in the creation and bring it to its fullest realization. And so transform the Garden of Eden into the city of God, the New Jerusalem. Which is interesting. We've got the Garden of Eden in the opening pages of the Bible. You turn to the very end, Revelation 21 and 22. You've got the New Jerusalem described. That's what God, in a sense, I think is saying to man when he says to guard and keep the garden and to fill the earth and to subdue it, to take God's good creation and make it better. This is what it means to be human. Stamped with God's image, our calling now is to continue what God started, to take the raw materials God built into the creation and to shape and mold the world into something better. So God will receive a return on his investment at the last day. God has given us the creation, in a sense. We want to give it back to Him at the last day, better than it was when He handed it over to us. And in a sense, you could say, this is what we have done as the human race. Imperfectly, certainly, because of sin and foolishness. But it is what humans have been doing now for 6,000 years. Just think about it this way. The world in Adam's day could never have supported 7 billion people as it does today. The creation's resources had to be unlocked and developed. The world is in a certain sense, in certain ways, better today than it was in Adam's day. We've unlocked glories and potentialities in the creation that Adam had not. The world is better today than it was then. Now, somebody might say, well, how can you say the world is better today? Uh, after all, we've got, yeah, 7 billion people in the world, but think about how much poverty there is. And there was no poverty in Adam's day. Well, that's true. Uh, and, and of course, there was no death in Adam's day either. Sins entered in, and, and, and it's all been complicated and tangled up because of that. And, and of course, that's why Jesus came as the new Adam, to undo sin, to conquer death, to put creation back on track so God's purposes for the creation could be fulfilled. But just take that issue of poverty just for a moment, because I think this is just the kind of thing we need to think about. Yes, there are 7 billion people in the world today, and many of them do live in poverty, and that is horrific. That should bother us deeply. But we should also recognize that the percentage of people living in extreme poverty has been declining for quite some time now. So if you go back to the year 1820, 
90% of the world lived on less than $2 a day, adjusting for inflation and purchasing power. This is how the World Bank defines extreme poverty. In 1820, 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty. In the year 2015, less than 10% of the world lived on less than $2 a day. Less than 10% of the world lived lives in extreme poverty. And, and this is simply astounding. Despite the fact that global population has been growing very rapidly from 1820 to 2015, the actual number of people living in extreme poverty, again as defined by the World Bank, has fallen. The world's growing better. The world is growing richer. The world is richer than ever. The world is wealthier than ever. Uh, Some people have a hard time understanding this. How can the wealth of the world actually grow? Isn't wealth a zero-sum game? It's like slices of a pie, and there's only so much to go around. We can't go into all the economic theory behind this, but wealth is not a zero-sum game because the world is not a closed system. If the world's a zero-sum game, then if some get richer, it's always at the expense of others. If some get richer, then others must be getting poorer because there's only so much to go around. No, what we see is that the wealth of the world is actually growing. Man's input, man's labor actually transforms and glorifies the world so that wealth increases. Man's work adds wealth to the creation. Just a couple examples of this. Think about sand. Sand is so plentiful uh, that we don't even put a dollar figure on it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it would seem to be basically worthless. But you know, at some point... Uh, at some point along the way, someone figured out that you could use sand to make cement to build things. And so sand got a little more valuable. A little bit more value was added to the world. You could build things now you couldn't before. Someone then discovered that you could make glass and mirrors out of sand. That if you melt it down, you can turn it into glass. A little bit more value was added to the world. Then someone discovered that you could take the silica out of the sand and melt it down and run an electrical current through it and power a technological revolution that would change the way we live throughout the globe, throughout the world. Uh, God did not create the computer, but God did create sand. And he did create electricity. He gave us all the raw materials we would need to build computers. And computers add value to the world. They make the world a better place. They add to the riches of the world. Computers are a treasure the world now has to offer that we didn't before. Take another example, oil. Oil used to be that stuff that just got in the way. If you were digging a well, you hoped to not hit oil because it would ruin your well. For most of human history, oil was basically worthless. Now, eventually people found safe ways to burn it, like in lamps, and safe ways to cook with it, and so that added value to oil and added value to the world. But then man created this thing called the internal combustible engine and found that oil could be used to power a transportation revolution. And indeed, man kept tinkering with oil and found that you could make plastic and all kinds of other things out of it. All these valuable resources now come from oil. It was once worthless. And now, of course, what do we call it? Black gold. It's incredibly valuable. Why? What's the difference? What, what turned oil from something worthless into something incredibly precious this 
valuable resource, human labor. Human labor is continually adding value to the creation, making the creation a better place, a a, a richer place. Isaiah 60 describes all the nations of the earth bringing their treasures and riches into the kingdom of God. And we should picture this as a kind of flow that happens throughout history and, of course, especially at the end of history. But the point is, over the course of history, nations have been accumulating more and more treasure, greater and greater riches to offer God, to bring into his kingdom as the creation is being transformed by the Spirit of God and by human labor. Now, I want you to notice that this is man's place in the world. I want you to notice how contrary this is to what is sometimes called the radical environmental movement. The radical environmental movement, which is really a neo-pagan, anti-Christian movement. It's really an attempt at self-salvation. Even the rhetoric points you in that direction. But it really leads to tyranny, poverty, and death. It really sets up an alternative religion. That don't always be explicit in the worship of the goddess Earth. But that's really what's happening. And it's a religion of guilt. It's a perpetual guilt machine. There is no absolution offered in this religion of radical environmentalism. Now understand, Christians are not against environmental care or creation care. Christians are in favor of stewardship of the creation. In fact, if you go back and look at the history, Christians were among the first uh, and most active conservationists. As Christians, we are both conservationists who want to preserve intact creation's beauty and transformationalists wanting to use the resources of the creation to better human life as a way of loving our neighbors. We care for the creation. We care for animals and want to see them treated right. We care for forests and oceans and rivers. God has entrusted creation to us to rule and to manage and develop. And so as creation's rulers and caretakers and stewards and shepherds, we have a responsibility to take good care of this world God has given to us. But see, the radical environmentalists, they're not content with that. They see man not as a caretaker or steward of the creation. They see man as a cancer, as a parasite who only consumes and destroys a pristine world. I saw pictures from an environmentalist rally not too long ago where somebody was holding up a sign that said, save the planet, kill yourself. As if really the only solution to the environmental crisis is to reduce your carbon footprint all the way to zero. That's really the only way. As if it's got to be one or the other. As if humanity and the earth can't coexist and cooperate. So what are we? Are we parasites or are we producers? Are we polluters or transformers? Well, there's no doubt man has at times hurt the environment. And that's a shame. But a couple things about that. One is the environment has always proven resilient. And two, people have always been able to improve technology rapidly enough that we've been able to uh, undo a lot of the damage caused by our uh, industrialization and technological technological developments. And I think it's clear we can have both a beautiful planet and a developing civilization. There are all kinds of challenges, but it can be done. And I think ultimately what points us in this direction, again, is Revelation 21 And 22, that final picture, that final description we have of the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and earth. And what you see, if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, is this city. And yes, it's a city with walls and gates and buildings. But it's also 
a garden. It is a garden city. It's a garden city that really combines the best of Earth's natural beauty and the best of human cultivation and civilization all in one. It's a beautiful Earth and it's a developed civilization merged into one. One beautiful picture we have. And that's the goal. No, humanity is not a cancer in the creation. I'd say overall, we've made the creation, we've made the earth better because we've made it more fruitful. We can put it in the language of Genesis 2 again. The reign of the God's spirit from above and man's labor from below have improved the creation and will continue to do so. Yes, man has damaged the creation at times and we need to repent of that. But we are not liabilities, we are assets to the created order. And we are not merely consumers, we are producers and transformers who contribute to creation's flourishing. Indeed, creation could not flourish without man's stewardship and cultivation. Creation is our home and it will be forever. Even in the resurrection, we're going to live in this creation. And so we're to take care of creation as our home. We're to cut the grass and we're to pull the weeds. We're to clean things up when we spill them. We're responsible for the upkeep and the maintenance and the maturation and the shepherding and the glorifying of the creation. That is the human vocation. To take the world God has given to us and to make it better. It's what we were made to do. See, we don't work just to make money in order to survive. We work because we must if we are to thrive. We work because we're human and work is part of a fully human life. And I'll tell you too, this is why unemployment, especially for men, but just unemployment in general, is so devastating. It's because we identify with our work. There's no dignity in human life without work. Our work is really an extension of who we are. Indeed, when God redeems us, he redeems our work in some way as well. He's going to make the work that we do in some way to stand forever. That's his promise, to somehow weave the work that we do in this life into his eternal new creation. Somehow the treasures we produce with our life's work will be brought into the kingdom of God and will endure forever. I've heard the story that Chuck Colson would uh, show up at the office after the weekend was over and he'd say, thank God it's Monday. And that ought to be the Christian attitude towards work, the Christian view of work. Now, take all of that, building off of all of that, Paul gives some very specific instructions about work. And so we can wrap up with this. Paul takes that theology of work I just gave to you and he focuses it in certain ways. He shows us that work serves the good of others. It's a form of love for neighbor. This is emphasized in both Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Ephesians 4, stop stealing and start working, he says. Work with your hands so you can share with those in need. Work as a way of serving others and enabling us to share with others. 1 Thessalonians 4, it's all unpacking what it means to love one another more and more. Work with your own hands, Paul says, as we commanded you. So notice a couple of things here. Both of these passages connect work with love and service. As we faithfully fulfill the dominion mandate of Genesis 1, we are actually also fulfilling the great two commandments to love God and to love neighbor. As we fulfill the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate, as we do our work, we are also fulfilling the two greatest commandments of loving God and loving neighbor. Work is love in action. 
It's the embodiment and outflow of love. When we do our work well, with excellence and competence, we actually serve the common good. We add value. We make the world a better place. Doing your work well is a way of loving your neighbor. John Calvin put it this way. He said, we know that men were created for the express purpose of being employed in labor of various kinds and that no sacrifice, he calls our work a sacrifice, no sacrifice is more pleasing to God than when every man applies himself diligently to his own calling and endeavors to contribute to the general advantage. The general advantage, what we would call the common good. That's the point of our work. Others benefit from the work we do. Yes, we benefit from our work, But remember, there's no tension there in others benefiting from our work as well. Indeed, work allows us to care for the poor. We can take from our excess income, as Ephesians 4 shows, and share it with those in need. Work creates wealth that can be given to others, to those in need. But I think we can even go a step further than this. Paul's thinking, okay, you work a job, you get paid for it, you can share with others. In a larger sense... Entrepreneurship and business provides the only real solution to poverty in the long run. Think about this. What do the poor need? What cures poverty? What do the poor need? Well, more than anything else, the poor need Jesus. And the church can give them Jesus. The church can minister Jesus to them. But after that, what's their next biggest need? Their next biggest need is for a job. If they're ever going to escape Poverty. if they're going to end generational cycles of poverty, they need gainful employment. And guess what? The church doesn't create jobs. And actually, the government doesn't create any jobs either. I would love to ask some of our politicians who talk about money and jobs and that kind of thing, I'd love to ask them, where do money and jobs come from? Where do wealth and jobs come from? I think a lot of our politicians couldn't tell you, and that's why we end up with so much bad public policy. What the poor need are jobs, which means we need entrepreneurs who create jobs, entrepreneurs who build businesses that create jobs that they can hire people are actually doing a great service to the poor. When the poor find meaningful work, they not only get a paycheck, they get their dignity back. But think about that. There's no way to escape poverty without a job. And where do jobs come from? Jobs have to be created. Entrepreneurs have to build businesses that hire people. That's where you get jobs. That's a Christian thing to do. Entrepreneurship is a Christian enterprise. So that's the first thing to notice. Work is a form of neighbor neighbor love. The final thing to notice is that Paul commands us to work with our hands. I think this is so important. Paul commends and commands manual labor. And he does so in the face of a Greco-Roman culture that despised manual labor. If you could escape manual labor, you did so in that culture. Manual labor was for slaves in the ancient world. If you didn't have to work with your hands, you didn't. It was not respected. Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle had taught that the contemplative life was superior to the active life. That intellectual work was superior to manual work. And Paul simply disagrees with that. He flat out disagrees with that. For Paul, all work, whether done with our hands or with our brains, whether it's manual labor or intellectual labor, has value. But two times in Ephesians 4 and in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, work with your hands. 
Our culture, I'm afraid, is a lot like that ancient Greek culture that Paul was railing against. Our culture tends to look down on manual labor as well and manual laborers. But those who work with their hands ought to find their work respected and honored in the church. Because working with your hands is a noble enterprise. Indeed, it was the recovery of an appreciation for manual labor by Luther and Calvin at the time of the Reformation where they said, no, it's perfectly good and acceptable to God to work with your hands. It's good to work with your hands. That breakthrough at the time of the Reformation is actually what led to the rise of modern science and what we call the scientific revolution. Because, you know, the reality is you can't figure out how the world works just by thinking about it. That's what Plato and Aristotle wanted to do. Ancient Greeks just thought they could think their way to an understanding of reality. Now, if you want to understand the way the world works, you have to get your hands dirty. You have to manually investigate and measure and experiment. And the Reformation made that kind of work respectable. And in doing so, it gave rise to modern science. Uh, People have often wondered, why didn't science arise at some other time and some other place? What was it waiting for? Why did science finally break through in the 17th century in this particular place, in these particular countries and cultures? Well, this has a lot to do with it. The Reformation provided the kind of worldview that could support the scientific enterprise, and this was a big part of it, that working with your hands in the world is respectable. And so in the 17th century, when scientific knowledge began to explode, the vast majority of the members of Britain's royal society, this was the society where all the great scientists gathered, the vast majority of them were English Calvinists, or Puritans as they're also known. Uh, Science really took off in those Protestant countries that were most impacted by the Reformation, and that is no accident of history. It's because the Reformation provided a worldview and a work ethic with all the ingredients needed to launch the scientific revolution. A highly disproportionate number of scientists throughout Europe and then America were Protestants in the 17th, 18th, and even into the 19th centuries. Paul praises working with our hands. Paul commands work with our hands. And and I would add, even if you do intellectual work, office work, that's what most of us do, These days, even if you do intellectual work rather than manual labor for a living, for most of us, uh, you know, the most our hands will do on the job is click a mouse. That's about it. But still, we ought to find ways to work with our hands. Even if it's not for pay, Paul would still say, work with your hands. Not that intellectual work is unimportant. It's also valuable. But we don't really have to make a case for that because everybody knows it. Working with your hands, even if you don't have to, is valuable and important. For as long as you're able, you ought to find things you can do with your hands. Whether it's working in, in, the, in the soil with your hands, doing some gardening. If it's repairing mechanical things with your hands, or building things out of wood with your hands, or playing a musical instrument with your hands, whatever, you need to work with your hands. We were made to work with our hands. We were made to work with our hands to make things and to fix things with our hands. Technology will never totally replace manual labor. And even if it could, we shouldn't let it. Paul says, work with your hands. And I think he means it. I think there's something healthy and therapeutic about building things or fixing things with your hands. And this is especially true for men. Sierra Wiley puts it this way. He says, men 
work with their hands because they want to. He says, in my experience, even educated men long to work with real physical things. And when they do, their minds descend into their hands. Rather than diminishing these men, the descent tends to elevate the work. Human nature doesn't change, even if the world does. Working with your hands is an important part of who you are. Even if it's not financially necessary, it's a key part of saying physically and mentally fulfilled. And I think it's so important to stress this in our culture. When we work with our hands, physical work distinguishes between the sexes more than intellectual work. Perhaps one of the reasons we have so much gender confusion is because we do so little with our hands. When men and women work with their hands, the differences between the sexes become very obvious in ways they aren't always obvious in an office environment where it's all intellectual work. Further, physical work disciplines us and humbles us because it requires us to submit to a fixed reality and fixed laws outside of ourselves. To work with your hands, you have to be in touch with the way the world actually is, with the way the world actually works, with the way the world is actually designed. You've got to conform your thinking to non-negotiable facts outside of yourself, facts that, quite frankly, don't care about your feelings. That's the kind of discipline that's missing in our culture that we need to have. It's a discipline that's sorely needed in our world where far too many people live in a virtual reality and have forgotten about physical reality altogether. They just don't engage with physical reality enough. I mean, think about it. If you are doing electrical work or mechanical work or plumbing work, what do you have? you got male and female connectors. Okay, if you work with male and female connectors and these things have to go together in just a certain way every single time for it to work, in certain ways that's going to inoculate you against a lot of the sexual perversions say homosexuality or transgenderism, that are afflicting our culture today. Because you're realizing the world works a certain way. It works this way and not that way. And there's a discipline in submitting ourselves to that. Uh, I won't go into that any further. I'll just say this. Uh, You know, we talk about when prayer got taken out of the public schools, what a tragedy that was. It was also a great tragedy when shop class got taken out of the public schools. And a lot of weird things started to happen when shop class got taken out. So let's find ways to bring it back in. What is this all about? The life of the Christian, as Paul profiles it in 1 Thessalonians 4 and also in Ephesians 4, is not what you would call a radical life. It looks pretty ordinary. And yet it is a life that if lived well, will make a radical difference in the world because it's a life built upon God's radical grace. And it's a life that is pleasing to God and that serves the good of others around us. Indeed, it's a life that serves the good of creation itself. Let's pray and give God thanks. Father, we do thank you for giving us work. For we know work is one of the ways in which we image you. And so I pray that you would help us to do our work faithfully. That we would do our labors in such a way that we bring you glory and bring good to our neighbors. Help us to be satisfied and content, even with ordinary and mundane work that you give us to do, knowing that it's one of the ways that you form us and mold us into Christ's image. It's one of the ways that you form and mold the world around us, making it a better place. It's one of the ways that you enable us to serve our neighbors. 
Give us work to do. Help us to be faithful in doing that work, to execute our work to your glory and for the good of our neighbors. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.